There were some people that were uh, thinking that Christ was not enough. And that it, it would not have been wrong for people, or people wouldn't have been opposed to hearing Christ preached, but they didn't want Christ preached as being the only Savior or the only way. They didn't want an exclusive God in Christ Jesus. And so they started to look for other things. And and, and in the text next week, we're going to get into verses 16 and following, where it talks about festivals and and, uh, asceticism and uh, legalism and the worship of angels and spirits and things like this. All these things, they they were intruding on the Colossians and their theology. And what Paul is doing in this section here, and he's continuing on where we're at this morning, is he's telling them that Christ is enough. And in verse 10, he says that you have the fullness of God in Christ, uh, by Christ being in you, in the union with Christ. And so this morning, we're going to continue that thought of our union with Christ. The title of the message is, Two People, One Story, Our Union with Christ. The two people are you and Christ. But as we're going to see, our identity in our story gets swallowed up in the identity of Christ. If we are believers, our background and our identity is eradicated and erased and it, we become one with Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. And so the text this morning starts in verse 11 and I'll read down through verse 15. This is the word of the living God. In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. This is a packed passage, and, and we'll do our best in the short time we have together this morning to unpack this, and we'll see how we go, and if we get through it all, then we'll move on next week, but if not, we'll just come back at, at this text where we leave off. But there's so much theological truth that is, that is very practical to where you are at today if you are a believer in Christ. So what does our union with Christ mean? When we say this, how, what are we talking about? Again, let me remind you, I wrote a short little handout. It's on the Welcome Center that gives you some theological definitions and some other scripture references of where we could see this concept. I encourage you to pick one of those up afterwards. But according to this text, I see three main ideas that come out of this text what is related to our union with Christ. First of all, to be unified with Christ, or our union in Christ, it means that we are part of God's people. We are part of God's people. We see this here in this whole idea of this discussion, verse 11, with this circumcision. Now, this might seem odd to us, 
if you're writing the letter to people, I, I sincerely doubt that the word circumcision has made it into your letter to people that you're writing to. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, a different topic to be talking about. But why is this so important here? Well, what he's talking about here is he's talking about a spiritual circumcision. We are God's people through a spiritual circumcision. What is he talking about here? Now, in the Old Testament, you know, in the Israelite male children on the eighth day after their birth were circumcised. And it was a minor surgical procedure. But it was much more than that. It was more than just a surgical procedure. It was the, it symbolized submission to and obedience of the law. Circumcision was the first requirement of the law for the Jewish males. It was seen as the point of entry into the community of Israel. No one could keep the law at all unless they were circumcised. In fact, if someone were a convert to Judaism, a, a proselyte, if you will, that was, for the males, that was the first thing they had to do. They had to go through it regardless of age, regardless of, of their background, whatever, in order for them to be an Israelite, in order for them to be included into the covenant family of God, they had to go through this procedure. And so it was a big deal to this community. It was a big deal to these people who were understanding this. It, it meant much more than just a minor surgical procedure. It meant, it was symbolized that they were part of the family of God. They were a part of the people of God. And so this is a, but, but what he's saying here, he's saying this, he's not talking about the physical circumcision because he talks about, it says, it made without hands. And throughout the New Testament, whenever we see that phrase, it's always in a response to something that God had done spiritually, something that he has accomplished. And so this is from God, it's not from man. So we are part of God's people through spiritual circumcision. And this idea of putting off the body of flesh has the idea of removal of slavery to our old nature. And so what he's done there is is on the cross, this is what this passage is teaching, that on the cross, Christ, he has stripped away the body of flesh. Not just a small portion of flesh surgically removed. No, this was a huge endeavor that Christ did, the whole body of flesh that symbolized our sin nature, that on the cross, Jesus stripped that away and he removed it. And the only way that we can have that benefit is by being one with Christ. And so we see this union of Christ means that we are part of God's people. And the tense of this verb here that is talked about, it points back to conversion. It points to the time when you and I accepted Christ, when you and I repented of our sins. That is when the old nature was stripped away because of what Christ did on the cross. Now you and I struggle with sin. You and I struggle with being obedient. There is no perfection this side of heaven. But according to Romans 6, and we don't have time to go there, so if you're taking notes, write down Romans 6, 7, and 8, and then you can look that up later on. According to Romans 6, we see that because of what Christ did on the cross, we are no longer slaves to sin. Now, we feel that way at times. We feel the pull of sin. We feel the struggle. But, my friends, we do not have to sin. That's the good news. The sobering news and and the, the serious news is that because we don't have to sin, because we're not dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're made alive, that when we do sin against God, it's that much more egregious. Because we don't have to. But we choose to. 
We choose to give in to temptation and we choose to give in to the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so as being part of the people of God, we see that it is through what he's talking about, this idea of spiritual circumcision. But it's symbolized by baptism. And so he, he, he goes through and he, he introduces this concept of baptism. Now, I, I want you to know that when I'm studying for message, there are several phases or uh, components to my study. Uh, I start with language tools and I, I go through the original language. I print out uh, the text. And I have all the original language underneath it on the screen. And I go through all the parts of speech and write things down because it really helps me understand what the main emphasis of the text is by understanding what the participles are and all those different things. And so I go through the language tools. And so that usually takes about a day, sometimes a little bit longer. But usually the better part of one day, I go through all the language study of the text. Then what I do is I write a rough outline. I write down what I think the text is saying and I, 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 I put in an outline form. Then I just start immersing myself in reading. And I have uh, probably about 15 or so commentaries on Colossians. And every week I read at least 10 of them and go through the, the text. And I enter into a dialogue with these authors about what they think the text is saying and what I think the text is saying. And, and so it, it's, a, it's a real fun time. I, I, I love what I do. I can't believe I get paid to do it. And so um, I, I go through the text and, 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 and I go through, through all of that. And I read a lot on it. And then we have this dialogue. And it's interesting sometimes to hear what other people say about this. Like, for instance, one author said, according to about verse 15, he said, hardly a word in this verse is not under dispute. Well, that's encouraging, <laughs> you know, when you're trying to, to figure it out. And some people, they were really struggling with the idea of what baptism, why he introduced baptism here. And some people teach, and they, this is the basis for infant baptism right here, according to some people's theology. Now, I don't land there, I'm not there, but I understand where they're coming from. Because in their mind, is when Paul introduced this idea of having been buried with him in baptism, verse 12, in which you also raised with him, it, it, it's, it, he's saying that the baptism is replacing circumcision. And so this is, where, this is the reason why our Presbyterian friends would, uh, one of the reasons why they would baptize infants. It's not necessarily so that they believe that that baptism saves them. It means that they, according to their theology, that it, it introduces the child into the covenant family of God. And so I, I'm sympathetic towards that, that understanding, and it makes sense to me on a certain level, uh, and, and, and I love the symbolism and the picture of it. However, I just don't think it's biblical. I just don't think that that's what the Scripture is teaching. And drawing parallels between the two, the baptism and the circumcision, the logic of the passage demonstrates that Paul relates circumcision to baptism rather than baptism to circumcision. See, there's the distinction. He takes and he goes and says circumcision is kind of like baptism rather than baptism is replacing circumcision. Therefore, that is, circumcision takes a place, the this, this spiritual circumcision takes place at a Christian spiritual baptism. And so we see he's talking about the same event here. When we're converted, we are spiritually baptized, and later on in our water baptism is, symb is symbolizing that. And so this passage really is saying that you were circumcised when you were buried with him in baptism. And so the symbolism that we see here, and this is the reason why he goes through this text, is he, and he introduces this idea of baptism, is because this shows that we have a new life in Christ. We have been introduced into the family of God. We're part of the covenant family of God. 
And later on, when, we're, when we symbolize that uh, visibly through water baptism uh, by immersion, and I think in a few weeks we're going to have a baptism here, and I'm looking forward to that. I love baptism services. They're just such a beautiful picture. Every time I take part in a baptism service or I witness a baptism service, I want to get baptized again because I just love the symbolism of it. And uh, it's just a beautiful picture of what Christ has done and our unity with Him. And so water baptism is a public and all-inclusive manifestation of our union with Christ. If, and why this is so important is because if we would have kept with this symbol here, the original symbol of the children of Israel, it's a very private symbol, and it's not inclusive to all. It's only for males. But see here with the baptism, as then come to take a, a different, uh, to symbolize what has happened in the circumcision, the spiritual circumcision. It is public, so all can see, and it's inclusive for everyone. And it manifests our union with Christ. That Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. Because remember, that whole idea of circumcision was in order to fulfill the law. But here the text is saying that in Christ, Christ has done that. Christ fulfilled the law for you, so you and I, we cannot fulfill the law. Number two, as we consider what our union of Christ means, first of all, it means the beautiful picture that we are part of God's people. We are in God's family. Number two, we have forgiveness of sins. I I know I can't speak for you, but I know in my own heart, this point here, I take for granted way too often. The fact that my sins have been forgiven. It's no longer held against me. I can't believe that. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2 and according to this text here in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So what does forgiveness of sins mean? He uses a couple ideas to illustrate this. First of all, is that we are now alive. We are now alive. We were formerly and naturally dead, but letter A and number two, we are now alive. It's not just individual acts of sin that condemns the unregenerate. It's their abiding in a state of deadness that condemns them. A parallel text that we could go to would be Ephesians 2, verse 12, and it says this. It says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our status. That is who we were before Christ, before our union with Christ, before the the finished work on the cross of, uh, of Christ on our behalf. We were dead and we had no hope. We were absolutely hopeless. But now, instead of being dead, according to the Scriptures, I get the privilege of proclaiming to you at this moment that we are alive in God and alive in Christ. We have that spiritual understanding and we can have that, under, that, that opportunity to choose not to sin and not be caught in the deadness of our sins. Sometimes we're frustrated with the world and the wickedness of the world and we wished our world was a better place. And I do too. But let me remind you that the world without Christ is dead. They're doing what they only know to do. And therefore, we need to bring the Gospel to them so they will be made alive and their eyes will be opened and they will see the opportunities that we have to worship God in obedience to His commands. 
We're alive. We have forgiveness of sins. Letter B, our record of debt has been canceled. The imagery here is is amazing. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. These are barriers. What he's talking about here is that these are things that kept him from being part of the family of God. There are, sometimes we want to be part of something, but there are barriers to that. When I was a kid, at first I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I loved to play baseball. I played catcher in first base for the Little League team. And um, one summer, though, uh, in the strike zone then was chin to knee. And one summer I grew six inches, and so I had this massive strike zone. They were just lobbing the ball anywhere, and it was a strike, and it frustrated me. So I moved to basketball. So I figured, well, if I'm taller, I'll start playing basketball. So guess what? I wanted to become what? A professional basketball player. Well, very quickly, I learned that there was a barrier to me becoming a professional basketball player. It was called talent, okay? Um, it's, a, it's a somewhat significant thing to have if you want to get paid to do that, um, and so, I, 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 obviously, I, I could never become a professional basketball player because there's a barrier there. Well, here, there's a barrier to us being one with Christ. There was a barrier to us understanding and being a part of God's family, and that was our sinfulness. People, they often emphasize the love of God, and we just sang a beautiful song about the love of God. And we should emphasize the love of God. However, we need to understand that in the conversation, we also need to talk about the justice of God and the holiness of God. Because God is holy, He cannot ignore sin. Because God is just, He has to deal with sin. And the wrath of God has to be poured out. Because if He withholds that and does not deal with sin, then He is no longer holy. And He is no longer just. And so He has to do something with that. In the gospel, my friends, the gospel says, and it's the beautiful message that Christ said, I will take that wrath. And Christ went to the cross, and Christ hung on the cross, and the wrath of God was poured upon Him, thereby keeping God's holiness, and keeping God's justice, and showing a great display of God's love. Love, justice, and holiness all working together. Only God could do that. And He made us alive And he canceled, at that moment, the record of debt that was held against us. So these two ideas that are given in this text, this idea of canceling and removed. Canceling, the word is used often, it signified the wiping or the scraping away of a papyrus sheet so that they could be used again. And so when it says that, the, that he canceled the record of debt, it, it, there's an idea that, that and, and people differ on what this means. Uh, and some ancient theologians would say that God kept a book, and in this book all of our, our bad deeds were, were written. Um, I don't believe that there's any uh, support of that uh, biblically, but the idea was that this, this book that God has on everybody and all the, 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 the bad things they've done, that in Christ that is then scraped clean and wiped away and canceled. Have you ever had a bad mark on your record? Maybe a, a driving ticket. You don't have to raise your hand. 
um, you, you, or, or, or something has happened to you. I was talking with someone recently, and, and they, were, they were talking to me about some things in their past and, and how that uh, unjustly they have things on their record. And, and, and um, I, I thought that would, that would just be wonderful if we could somehow just remove all of that. In Christ, all of your debt is wiped clean. It's been canceled. The, the idea, in illustrations don't always fully capture the, the idea, but it would be like this. It would be, um, some of us have mortgages on our homes. And some of us would love for our mortgage to be canceled. And we have this mortgage and we're paying it every month and, and we get the statement and we see how much we pay and we see how much of it goes to interest and we cry. And uh, then we pay it next month and we see how much went to interest in that principal and we cry some more. <laughs> and so we, we, we're, we're paying this debt, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was just wiped away? But you see, here's the difference. This is where the illustration breaks down. My mortgage... I'm working, I get a paycheck, I send money. So I'm working this off. The debt that stood against us in verse 14 could never be paid off. A better way to understand it would be that you have a mortgage, you have no job, you have no source of income, you have no unemployment, you have no Social Security, you have no friends or family that are giving you money or could give you money. You have zero income at all, and your debt is growing by the day. That is a better picture. And then it's wiped away. In Christ, our union with Christ means that what should be held against us, the, the, the accusations that should condemn us to eternity of hell has been wiped away. That is forgiveness of sins. He talks about the removing there. He talks about nailing it to the cross. And most likely it's referred to the indictment that hung over the prisoner's head. Remember when Jesus was hung, Pilate put above his head uh, the king of the Jews and the people, they wanted him to change it to say he said he's the king of the Jews because that was the indictment in their mind. That was the reason why he was hanging there. That was his debt. And so as he was he's hanging there, as the prisoner was, was hanging there and over his head to sign the indictment of why he was there when he was crucified, by this action, by putting the sign there, and him hanging there, and him dying, it was symbolizing that his debt to society was canceled since he paid for his crime. Because his crime was lifted, he's dying there. There's, there's, uh, there's no more debt that this person has to pay because he paid it with his life. This is what we should have been doing. We should have to have paid for our sin with our lives. But according to this text, the beautiful pictures our union with Christ shows that it's been canceled and it's been removed. Because of our union with Christ, our debt to society and God has been paid. It's been removed. There's no longer you have to worry about it. And then it talks about nailing it to the cross. And this, this idea of, of he set aside, did you see that in verse 14? He says, this he set aside. And that's the idea of he just, he just totally removed it from the area and, and removed it from sight. And so not only has God removed the debt, but he also destroyed the document on which it was recorded. 
Sometimes after a mortgage is paid off, there's a mortgage burning ceremony. And so they light the mortgage on fire. They're destroying the document that showed that they had owed money. This is what God has done. And so this morning, according to this text, I wanted to remind you as believers what your union with Christ means. It means you have forgiveness of sins. But very quickly, lastly, in the couple minutes we have left, it means that, number three, we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ, letter A, disarmed the forces of evil. We don't have to fear evil anymore. Most likely what he's talking about here is evil spirits uh, because this is probably a reaction to the Colossians wanting to include a worship of other angels in in, in the spirit world. And remember earlier we talked about how that, that Christ was just one of the spiritual emanations that were going back and forth to God. And, and there, were many, there were many spirit beings according to this false teaching that the Colossians were being confronted with. And so these people, these, excuse me, these spirit beings had authority and had power and, and us as humans needed to bow before them and they were kind of our go-between between the, us and God. And this is what he is saying. He's saying these evil spirits and, and, and these other uh, deities that don't exist, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He disarmed the forces of evil. We don't have to worry about this anymore. Many people live in the fear of the randomness of evil, random violence, random storms, random accidents that wreak havoc in their lives. Most want to experience some type of control over what will happen to them, and they fall victim to all sorts of self-deceptions and scams. We don't have to fear the randomness of evil because God is sovereign, and in our union with Christ, we have been and we have received the victory and triumph over these people and they've been put the these 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 powers and have they've been put to open shame. Many people, many have become convinced that they are simply products of the forces of nature over which they have no control or remedy. Everything from uh, criminality to addictions to sexual orientation to shyness is understood as a matter of genetic destiny rather than choice. It results in a sense of helplessness and a lack of moral responsibility. Quote, I cannot help the way that I am, unquote. Christ has disarmed all of those things. He has put those to open shame. He has, uh, uh, we do not have to fear heritage. We do not have to fear who we are like. And, and, and I hear sometimes where people say, well, you know, my family's like this. We've all been this way. All the men in my family are this way. no. Christ has conquered all of that. We do not have to fall into that mold. He disarmed the forces of evil. Letter B, Christ made a public spectacle of the forces of evil. Did you see that in the text there, placing them to open shame? This is one of two times in all of New Testament that this word is used. The other time is used in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, where we read that Joseph did not want to disgrace Mary publicly. Remember that? This is it right here. He didn't want, when, when, when people discovered the pregnancy, when he discovered her pregnancy, he was going to put her away quietly. He was going to divorce her privately, he said, because he didn't want her to be disgraced. So in that sense, the word was used of exposing or making a public example of someone. But rather than not doing it, this is exactly what God did on the cross. 
The phrase triumphing over them alludes metaphorically to the practice of the Roman generals following a conquest. In the days before the modern news media, the most spectacular method of announcing a far-off victory to people at home was to march in triumph through the city, displaying the spoils of war taken from conquered people and leading a host of, of prisoners through the streets as a public spectacle. It reminds me of the Nuremberg trials after World War II. The, 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 the leaders of the Third Reich, the ones who had not committed uh, suicide, they were placed on trial in open shame. And the people who were once feared in that, in that land, in that country, for the decisions that they were making, they were just sat there before the media, before the newspapers, with no power, with no authority anymore. This is what Christ has done to all the forces of evil that oppose us. Now, I cannot end this sermon, this message, without pointing out a tremendous irony in this text. These powers, these evil powers, rulers and authorities, in verse 15, Satan and his host, people who oppose God, they were angry at God and Christ's challenge to their sovereignty. And so, they stripped Christ. They stripped Him naked. They held Him to public contempt and celebrated a triumph over Him that night when He was betrayed and then when He was crucified. No doubt after He hung on the tree and He cried out, it is finished, no doubt, the high priest gathered around and and toasted celebration to one another. They had done it. They had removed the person who was challenging them. They had placed him in open spectacle and shame. He was there naked on a tree, and everyone could see how he had no power whatsoever. People made fun of Christ on the cross, and they said, if you're God, bring yourself down. And they waited, and they looked, and when Christ continued to hang there, they looked around and said, see, he has no power. We are showing everyone here that he has no authority, and we are putting him to public spectacle. And they spat on him, and they beat him, and they mocked him. This is what they did to Christ. But in one of the most dramatic statements of the paradox of the cross... This text teaches us that, that, that one shows why this is so important here. That when Christ died on the cross, instead of Him being put to public shame, on the contrary, on the cross, God was stripping those people naked. He was holding them to public contempt and leading them in His own triumphal procession. In Christ, the crucified Messiah, what Christ was doing on the cross, when they thought they were putting Him to public spectacle, according to this text here, He put the forces of evil to public shame, showing that when He triumphed on the cross in the resurrection, there was no power that could hold Him into the grave and that there was no authority greater than Him. And so in Christ, in our union with Christ, this is our identity as someone who has conquered death and has been made alive in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ is so important. Without it, we have no hope. So in closing, let me say this. In view of all this, why look to anyone but Christ for fullness? Cultivate human relationships 
but do not look for ultimate fulfillment in them because they will disappoint you. Energetically pursue your career, but do not imagine that you will find transcending fulfillment in it. In Christ, we have everything. And may our prayer be what Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Two things I want to leave you with before I pray. If you're in Christ, I would like you to feel the magnitude and the awesomeness of being one with Christ. That is now your identity. I want you to be thankful for that. And that will lead to worship and obedience. But maybe you're here this morning and, and this doesn't make any sense at all to you. You're still trying to figure out why the guy kept talking about circumcision all the time. Can I just ask that you ask God to reveal Him to you? And I would ask that you would talk to me or Wayne or, or someone here that you know We would love to show you more what it means to be in Christ. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. It's that important. Our union with Christ is foundational to all that we are and all of our hopes. Let us pray.